We are in week three of Explore God. And this, this might be uh, the most impossibly difficult question um, that I've ever preached on. I've preached on a lot of hard things, and I think this hands down goes top of the line, most, most difficult, most um, probably intense to plan, most emotional. And uh, before we do that, let me tell you what Explore God is. Explore God um, is something we're doing with just under 900 churches in the Chicagoland area. And uh, it's very rare that you see this many churches agree on anything. And so we've all agreed uh, to go after these. These are the seven most difficult questions that non-Christians have about the Christian faith. And they're also, quite honestly, the seven most difficult questions that Christians um, are petrified to answer. And so um, one of our desires is to lean right into some of these hardest issues. So that's what we're going to do today. Now, I do know that many of you are going to have a lot of questions. And uh, so one of, the, one of the things that I enjoy at Village is getting your questions back. And so um, I want to show you this on the screen at the bottom of all of our notes. It says, got sermon cues? Um, text VC Sermon to 555-888. Here's what happens when you do that. Um, if you text that, it opens up a thread, and you can submit any and all questions um, that you want um, to there, and we will get them. Uh, Pastor Tim and I and Pastor Craig, we're going into the studio uh, every Wednesday about 10 a.m., and so we get all of your questions, and uh, so we answer them, and so we release a podcast every Wednesday. It's called the Village Church Q&A Podcast, and on that one, we're going after on Wednesdays your questions from the Explore God series. When you text VC Sermon to 555-888, um, you're going to get a text back that will give you a link to that actual podcast so you don't have to hunt for it, um, and it does open up that line of communication. Anything you text, we will see. Now, we will, I say this every week, you need to know this, we do see the number, so we can use our brains and figure out who you are. So just FYI, um, but there's only um, one person who sees the numbers, and that person is keeping all of that private, um, but in case there's something bigger that you do need something, um, let us know. But that's a place where we want to honor your questions, we want to go after them. Uh, you can submit them anytime, but if you do it after 10 a.m. on Wednesday, we won't get it because that's that is when we record. Um, so the question for today, uh, here's the question. If God is good and all-powerful, then why does he allow evil, pain, and suffering? If I had a son or daughter who was about to experience any one of those um, I would personally intervene and do whatever I possibly could to mitigate, to lessen the severity of their pain and their suffering and the evil inflicted upon them. Raise your hand if you're in the same boat as I am, right? You can. That's, this is a place where it's actually good to raise your hand at that moment, right? Uh, but I understand some of you are like, listen, preacher, if you tell me to do it, I won't do it. I get that, and that's fine. I understand that, because actually that's me. So um, let me share a few things with you um, about this question. Number one, um, it is the most difficult question, I think, in all of the questions that could be possibly asked uh, of a pastor. Um, but I want you to get this. It's not difficult just for Christianity. It's difficult for every faith system. There is no faith system or ideology or worldview, whether it be atheism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, whatever it is, there is no faith system where someone is going to be able to sit down with you and make you feel good about the answers to this question. And so here's what I can absolutely 100% tell you. Um, not a single human being in this room is going to be satisfied with how I answer this question. So release your expectations of me to make sense of all of the worst moments of your life. I cannot do it. Um, also, this question um, is humanity's greatest excuse to ignore God. Uh, at the end of the day, anybody who doesn't want to deal with God 
lands here, and this has become the number one reason why people say, I don't want to, nor do I need to deal with God, um, because of this one singular issue. So last week we dealt with the question, is there a God? And we looked at scientifically and logically, it is impossible that there is no God. I'm just going to whet your appetite, go back to last week's podcast. It is a scientific and logical necessity that there is a powerful, sovereign creator who organized the chaos chaos of this world and brought it to order. But here's what happens for most people. Um, They say, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, because... How could there be a good God who is all-powerful and allow all this evil and suffering to happen? Let me give you an analogy for what this is like. It's like saying, um, I see how big of a jerk Michael is. Therefore, I don't believe Michael exists. That's fundamentally, that argument, when you hear people say, I don't believe in God because I would not like his character if he were real, that's not a logical or helpful or beneficial way to process the reality of God. So in fact, what we did last week is we just talked about the very necessity of the existence of God, and today we're actually going to get into his character. What is he like? I fully acknowledge that there are going to be people in this room and people who listen to this, and they're going to say, all right, I'll buy it. There must be logically, scientifically, a necessary sovereign creator who brought order out of chaos. But if that is true, then I can tell you this. What I know about him, I want nothing at all to do with him. And that's fine. That is your prerogative. But I want to just separate the questions because the existence of God and the nature and character of God, they're two very, very different questions. This is about what is God really like? What are his intentions? What is his motivation? What is his personality? What is his character? Can I trust a God who could stop evil, pain, and suffering, but chooses not to? So there are five questions that I want to put on the screen one at a time. And each of these five questions escalate in severity. Now here's what happens. All five of these questions are getting to the same fundamental core issue of if God is good and all-powerful, why doesn't he stop evil, pain, and suffering, right? Uh, But the way you ask the question tells me about where you're at personally. And so I'm going to put up these five questions. I'm going to explain them a little bit. What I want you to do is to kind of place yourself. Um, As you ask the question, which way are you asking it? And then what does that tell you about yourself? So here's the the first question. Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Okay, this is a whole sermon. I am just I'm, I'm exercising more pastoral self-control than I could ever tell you by just literally saying this. Um, we're going to go to the next question. Okay, but that's the first one, right? And that's the general question. So pop culture just basically implants ideas and questions into your mind uh, on purpose to cause confusion and whatnot, and that's one of them. Here's the second question, and this is, this is says, why does God let bad things happen to me? The moment someone says this, here's what I know. This isn't ethereal or philosophical, it's personal. Something happened. And in that moment, I want you to hear me, um, they are a human being with a story that needs to be honored. They're a soul that needs to be shepherded and cared for. There is no place for a debate in that moment. The last thing you do with somebody who's grieving is debate them about why their grieving is unnecessary. So number three, Why does God let bad things happen to Christians, God's kids? I want to tell you what it means when somebody's asking this. They're getting bigger, they're getting angrier, they're getting more frustrated, and now they're getting some of the more philosophical ideas here. If we, God's most beloved in the whole world, the people of God, people who have trusted in Jesus Christ, if we suffer, how much more does that indict the character of God? 
And so this is where the question comes back. What good father would allow his children to suffer, have the capacity to stop it, and then choose not to do it? And if you're looking at Christianity from the outside, this is the most logical question. In fact, you get to the book of Revelation, and, and uh, there's this scene in Revelation, I believe it's 6, where these martyrs, people who are murdered because of their faith in Jesus, are having a dialogue with the glorified Jesus Christ. And they say to him, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? They're not asking, why did you allow it? They're asking, when are you going to make this right? And then Jesus' response is striking. And he says, I'm going to give you the summary statement, um, not until the full number that I have ordained to be executed and martyred has filled up. So like the Bible actually is it's very interesting the way it, it, it processes the issue of pain, evil, and suffering, particularly from the perspective of us as God's kids. Number four, it's getting a little bit deeper. Why isn't God stopping atrocities in this world? Okay, so um, let me put this on the table. You think it's bad? It's worse than you and I think. Uh, I'll give you a small example. You drive down 90, right? And you see people speeding and you're getting frustrated. Do you know how much sex um, slave trafficking industry happens on 90? It's one of the hottest places uh, in the Midwest for sex trafficking. Like even when you think things are fine and you're going to Woodfield, statistically every one of you in this room have passed by somebody who's being trafficked. Did you know that? That's an unbelievable thought. It is way worse, and it is way darker, and it is way more evil, and way more sinister. Uh, we, this country has been built on a Judeo-Christian ethic that has largely protected us from so much of the evil and atrocity and bloodshed and war that you see in the Middle East and Africa and in Asia. It's unbelievable. Like, we are insulated. So we ask this question, by and large, from our high chair, uh, with our wealth and with our comfort, and say, why would he? It's very different than the person in the middle of it who's watching the bloodshed, asking the questions. But in the West, this is largely what we like to do. We sit back and we get philosophical and we accuse. Now, here's the fifth question. Uh, Why is God committing atrocities in the Old Testament? It moves from um, why would he allow it, why would he ordain it, to why would he do it? Again, I am literally exercising more self-control than I could ever tell you by not going. I think that is one of the most massively misunderstood concepts in all of Christianity and apologetics and how the world views Christianity. Um, uh, I I don't consider myself naive, and that is, uh, I don't struggle with that question after having studied it and seeing behind the scenes in Scripture and what was really going on. But I want you to be able to place yourself. Which one of these questions um, is most pressing for you? Uh, let me give you a, another category, another way to kind of identify yourself and place yourself um, in, this, in this discussion. Um, there are um, basically four general reactions and response, responses to suffering. Um, the first one is anger. Um, some of you are really, really, really angry. Um, you might be a Christian and be angry. You might be a non-Christian and be angry. Um, some of you are really, really, really skeptical. Um, you don't know what to think, but here's what I do know. Like, you're not ready to believe, and you have more questions for, for God before you're willing to do it all, at all be willing to trust him. Some of you are distracted on purpose, so you don't have to face anything of any substance or consequence. Busy, 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 busy. Put your head down. Don't deal with it. Um, some of you, and I, I would put myself in this last category, um, you're confused, and you are able to look at the crazy and the horror of this world. Um, I believe God, I trust God, but I don't get it. I do not get it. So even as I preach, 
Um, I preach as somebody who has, for God, personally, a whole bunch of, of questions. Now, what I want to do is I want to share with you a principle. It's called the benefit of the doubt principle. Intuitively, you all know this, but let me just give you some vocabulary so we could be um, processing this together. How you answer the questions that I just put up, those five questions, it is 100% predetermined by one factor. Every one of you, by the way, you have an answer for those, and your answers are predetermined. And they're predetermined by whether or not you trust and love God. That's it. That is how everybody answers those questions. You are either angry at God and shake your fist if you have a lack of love and trust, or if you have a high experience of love and trust, you will bend the knee and you will say, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Let me illustrate by Donald Trump, right? Um, I always love giving him as an illustration because now you're listening. Is he going to get political? No. If you love Donald Trump, if you love him, it doesn't matter what he says. You're like, this guy is the greatest president we've ever had. He's amazing. And you look past all of his faux pas. If you hate Donald Trump, he could literally save the world. And you would say, well, I hate him, whatever. You know, like, and it's all about your view of this singular person is all about whether or not you love and trust him. And whether or not you love and trust him is the filter by which you view all things. And so if you love and trust him, you love Fox News. If you hate him, you watch CNN and MSNBC. And it's, you're, you just play it out. And you surround yourself with people who think like you think. It's a very normal, regular thing. Let's get even more personal. Uh, this week, um, I met with a guy. And um, I had never actually talked to him more than like five minutes. Uh, we were going to get together, and we were meeting at Starbucks. And of course, I put the date for next Thursday instead of this Thursday. And so I'm driving, and I get this phone call from a random number, which I never answer. Uh, then I get a text message from a random number, and it says, are you going to show up or what, or something like that. And uh, now this guy doesn't know me at all, and he has an option at this point. He could fill in the lack of information with, this guy's negligent, he's arrogant, he's irresponsible, he's not even putting in his calendar. Like, that, that is a very plausible scenario. And if he had pastors before that really let him down, that might be an easy way to fill in the gap with that missing information. Uh, instead, I call him, and I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I put it for next Thursday, silly accident, I'm five minutes away. And we ended up talking for over two hours and having just a beautiful, like, get to know you, and it was a really meaningful experience. But that guy actually didn't need to call me and check in on me. Uh, he could have just written me off, but in that moment, he gave me the benefit of the doubt. And this predetermines every relationship in your life. It predetermines how you fill in the missing gap of information. I'm going to tell you what I know. I know this. Nobody, nobody knows how to answer the question. Nobody knows why God allows evil, pain, and suffering. And the moment someone sits down and tells you, I've got the answer, at best, they're surmising. At worst, they're leading you astray. Now, I have heard every philosophical argument for why, the, and I love philosophy and surmising, but, but from the pulpit, I have to stop and say any explanation. You could say it's free will. You could say this or that. All surmising. All surmising. Because this question twice is asked of God in Scripture. In fact, we're going to look at one of those. But Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. I want, I want you to hear me. This question, the answer to this question is a secret thing. It is a secret thing. 
It is something that God has chosen to withhold from all of humanity with any clarity about how a good and all-powerful God can step back and allow, ordain, or permit evil and suffering. And now here's the question. What are you and I going to do in the void of information? Are we going to lean into God? Are we going to give him the benefit of the doubt? Now, open up with me, Job chapter 1. I've given you enough introduction. Job chapter 1. We're going to look at a man uh, who has experienced more pain and suffering than I can possibly communicate, probably more than any human being in this room. And he doesn't just suffer once. He suffers over and over again for long periods of time. So open up with me, Job chapter 1, and ironically, in the next 15 minutes, I'm going to preach through the whole book of Job. You ready? <laughs> it's going to be life-changing. Um, there was a man in the land of Uz, or Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job had integrity. He loved God. As you continue on, he loved his family. He loved his children. He was a really good dad. He was faithful in worship and sacrifice and generosity. He loved God. He loved his family. He was a good man. He was one of the wealthiest men that had ever lived at the time. And if you were to look at this guy, all right, especially in light of the evil of his world that he lived in, you would say, if there's anybody in the whole wide world who God should be like, I'm going to make that guy's life easy forever, it's going to be Job. So as we read more of this story, I want to draw your attention to really just two things. I want you to know, notice, how bluntly and unashamedly the scriptures speak of pain, evil, and suffering. The Bible does not wash over or gloss over this subject. It deals with it directly, it confronts it, it is unashamed, it is unafraid, and there is no reason for any human being, follower of Christ or otherwise, to be afraid of this question. I'm going to arm you with the best answer you can ever give. I have no idea. I have no idea. That is the most humble and honest place to land in this question. Let's look at Job chapter 1, verses 13 to 19. This is not going to be on the screen, but I want, to, I want to read it to you. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. You're losing everything, one by one. As one messenger comes, another messenger is right on his tail. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups. They made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 18, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. I don't care how bad your year century was, whatever. Like this, this is a nightmare 
of epic proportions. The Bible doesn't hide it, doesn't make it better. I don't have time to read the backstory, but go sometime read Job chapters 1, 2, and 3 and get some of the backstory. It's an unbelievable story that honestly just adds more questions and confusion into the why. <laughs> but I want you to look at Job's unbelievable response. And as you do, this, this text is written in such a way to develop empathy in you. It is developed in such a way and written in such a way that you don't just gloss over it, but you stop and you feel. And then you are personally looking in your own heart and you have to ask the question, what would I do? Let's just stop for a moment. What if the Lord took all your money, all of your children, all of your home, all of your employees, and all of your business? Gone. And not just gone, dead. And you know that he could stop it, but he chose not to. What do you do? Verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head. By the way, is this a quick process? I I shave my head a couple times a week, and, and it's not easy, and it's not quick, right? This is a slow, arduous process. The text flies, but the story slows as you read it. And he fell on the ground and worshipped. And Job does something really beautiful, and he models two things that the Christian has to figure out how to lean into. One is he feels the full weight of the pain and the horror and the terror. Christians don't hide from grief or weeping. We lean into it. We cry and we mourn with those who mourn. And yet somehow our mourning is also complemented by absolute sincere worship. And and the question again is why? And the answer is almost always the same. I'll tell you later. So you're left with this void of information, unbelievable pain. And here's what the Christian does. The Christian gets on their face, not hiding or putting away or shoving deep down any of their pain, and they worship. So let me tell you what I know Job knew about God. I know that Job knew that God was good. I know that Job knew that God was righteous. I know that Job knew God could have stopped it and didn't. And I know that Job believed that one day he was going to get an answer that would satisfy him and vindicate the character and the integrity of his God. He carries on. You'd think that would just be enough, but he says this, naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What's the difference between him and anyone else who would have this same experience and their responses? The benefit of the doubt. How you fill in the missing information. And let's just remind ourselves, no matter how much you think you know, you don't know. You just don't know. Have you ever been in those circumstances where you thought there was no other perspective and this is the only way to see it, and then you get new information and you're like, oh no, I was completely wrong? That has happened to me more times than I could possibly tell you. I am so confident in my perspective and in my moral high ground and the new information comes that actually changes my whole perspective and I didn't even see it coming. 
I'm going to read the one author wrote, whatever faith is, it is supremely powerful. It is the fuel for the human soul that allows it to endure suffering. Without faith, the smallest bit of suffering turns us against God. Verse 22 says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. But we're not done. His life is about to get way worse. Uh, there are two very natural reactions to pain and suffering. Um, the first natural reaction is very simply, we back away from God. We just say, listen, I don't know how to fill in the gap of information. I don't know what to do with this. I'm not ready to give you the benefit of the doubt. So the irony to me is that you walk away from the only one who has the answer. Uh, in my brain, that doesn't feel logical. If I need an answer, then why do I turn my back to the only one with the answer? Number two, the second opportunity here is we reject God. And again, this to me is like saying, I don't like the way Michael acted, therefore I don't believe he exists, right? Imagine your children being like, I don't like the way you disciplined me. I'm an atheist when it comes to parents, right? I don't believe you exist. <laughs> like that doesn't even work. It's like you can say that, but he's still there. You may not like your mom or dad in that moment. You may not like the person, but they're still there and you can't just act like they're not there. I want to suggest to you maybe a third way. I think it's not just more logical, but it is more practical and it is more life-giving. Lean into God. Lean into God about the complexities of God. When you don't understand God, don't run away from the one you need to understand. Run into the one you need to understand. And I'm, I'm going to tell you this. You're never, as long as you live, going to get all the answers you need. But I can tell you what I have seen from Christian after Christian after Christian after Christian. If they walk with the Lord long enough, they see the goodness and the faithfulness of God in so many places that there is no way this God could be this evil. There has to be an explanation. There has to be a piece of information that I am missing that is going to make sense of all of this. And to date, the Lord has withheld that information from us. Job's suffering isn't over. Job chapter 2, verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Like, you think it's bad, right? And then the Lord allows Satan himself to physically torment him. All, all the questions you have, by the way, you should have them. Why would God do that? That is an incredible question that I think you should lean into God for the answer and not shake your fist. Ask them. Face them. Find the most difficult questions about God and go after them because they're not going to go away. Why would he do this? So then his wife, who, by the way, is so irritating, ladies, like not how you like support a godly man, okay? So... His wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I'd fill it in with you moron, right? Like, like this woman is irritating to the core, but hear me, she's reached her limits. Her, 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 her faith clearly is not strong enough to endure other people's suffering, let alone her own with losing her own children. Apparently whatever happened with the first bout she could sort of deal with, but now this is at a point where she's like, nope, I'm done. God could stop this, and he's choosing not to. I don't know why, but I'm going to fill in the gap of information. I'm going to no longer give him the benefit of the doubt, and I am concluding I want nothing to do with him. I'm telling you, every human being, we have our limits of pain and suffering, and if you are a believer, you just haven't gotten there yet. And the only thing that will allow your soul to endure is going to be faith. 
That is it. And I don't believe telling you to have faith is naive because it takes infinitely more faith to be an atheist. It takes a ton of faith to be a Buddhist or to be a Hindu and to buy into their philosophy of evil and pain and suffering. Here's what he says in verse 10. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. And foolish meaning people who are pushing God away and suppressing um, the very nature and the true things about God. And he said, you're, you're just acting like a foolish woman. He calls her what it is. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? So like, you're okay when God gives you everything. You like him when he makes your life easy. But as soon as he lets your life be hard, you're all of a sudden like, I'm done with you. Unless you give me what I want, we're over. I mean, truly suffering exposes the real quality of a relationship. And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So the book of Job's funny. If you don't know about it, like uh, even if you just open your Bible, feel free to peruse the book. It's about 42 chapters long. And uh, here's what happens between uh, chapters like 3, 4, and 38. Uh, Job's friends, three of them, come in and they just talk. And they talk and 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 talk. It's the most nauseating, like, like you thought Leviticus was bad, hearing these guys go back and forth and, and they're surmising, well, maybe it's this and maybe it's that. And, and it's, a, it's a, like, people who preach the book of Job, by the way, skip all those chapters by and large. Uh, it's just really hard stuff to get through. But um, it's belaboring the point. There are so many ideas about suffering and so many well-intentioned people uh, and they walk into your pain and suffering and be like, oh, I just... I think this is why there's pain and suffering in your life. I think it's because of this, or I think it's because of that. And and at the end of the day, the Lord has to rebuke all of them and basically say, all your friends are complete idiots. They don't know what they're talking about. They've overstepped their boundaries. Now Job starts listening, and Job is righteous. He's righteous. He's responding well. And then we get to um, chapters 26 to 31, and it's the last time Job speaks before God intervenes. And Job speaks for five whole chapters. I mean, the guy is processing verbally. Clearly, he's an extrovert like me, and he just needs to talk all of his thoughts out. And so we get this documented. And let me just summarize. By the time he gets done talking, here's basically where Job is at. He's at this place where he's like, God, I'm good. Look at all those people. If anybody should suffer, it's them. God, why would you do this to someone like me? Like that guy down the road, he is the biggest jerk on the planet, and you just bless him over and over and over again. Look at me. Look at me. That's what he's saying. And so Job's conversation is is done in verse 31, and then for the next seven chapters, another guy just speaks nonsense after nonsense. And finally, in chapter 38, the Lord is going to intervene. And here's what you're seeing. You're seeing that for most people, It's doable to suffer for a while, but the longer it goes, the weaker we get. The longer it goes, the harder it is to believe that God could be good if he could stop this and doesn't. Because in pain, what is the body's natural instinct? Get rid of it. Apparently, that's not God's natural instinct. Apparently, his instinct is bigger. Apparently, there's a motivation that I don't fully understand. So we fast forward to Job chapter 38, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read for a little bit. I'm going to tell you what I'm reading. I'm not going to put it on the screen. It's just too much. And uh, I, I just want you to listen and don't zone out, okay? God answers Job's question of why. Ready for it? It is the most awesome, humbling, 
frustrating, confusing, clear thing in Scripture. So I want you to imagine you say, in the midst of your anger, in the midst of your hurt, in the midst of your pain, why? Fist shaking, finger wagged, right? That's your, that's your heart, okay? This is what happens. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. <laughs> so uh, it's almost giving you a state into the emotional place of God. He's not impressed, right? He's not impressed. People who say, get angry at God. Tell him all your anger, right? I, I just slow that comment down a little bit. So bring your anger. Yes. Shout your anger. I, okay. Here's what God says. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? What moron is talking to me who knows nothing? Oh, Job, it's you. Good. Dress for action like a man. You want to fight? Put your, put your armor on, bro. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That's God talking to Job, by the way. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? <laughs> Tell me if you have understanding, or who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Is, is God impressed by the, right? Not at all. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Talking about planet Earth, like this star, right? When the morning stars, the angels sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds, its garment, and thick darkness, its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and says to the sea, this far you shall come, and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked into the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death ever been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Oh, God's not done. There's a lot more. And I'm skipping three quarters of what is actually said here. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Or who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? That's just, that's just half of chapter 38, 39. Do you know when the mountain goat gives birth? I love these. Some of these are hilarious. They're like, oh. Do you observe the calving of the does? Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Chapter 40. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder, an accuser, contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Like this is probably not how you thought I was going to answer the question of evil, Right? Then Job answered the Lord and said, let me tell you. <laughs> it's not what you do for what it's worth. Behold, <laughs> I am of small account. I'm a real boy. Like, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, too many times, and I will not answer twice. But I will proceed no further. Then... The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. God's not done. <laughs> God's still really upset. 
And he says again in, verse, in chapter 40, verse 6, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might be right? The, the reason I say all of this is because I want you to understand something. That the peon, the mortal, the tiny, puny, little human looks at the being that brought order out of the chaos of all the stars and all the world and says, I can't believe you would do this to me. And he's like, you literally are breathing because I permit it. And there, there's a problem here. When the peon takes the moral high ground, something is off. And this is where I want to challenge the fist-shaking accusations of God. Think twice before you challenge the integrity of the judge of the universe. Maybe there's another side of the story that you and I don't know yet. What if you literally know almost nothing of all the knowledge that has ever existed in the world and the infinite might have an edge of information, a perspective that maybe if you knew it would blow your mind and shatter your understanding of reality. What if? And yet the position of, I don't believe in a God because if he was all powerful and, and all good, he would stop this. Clearly he doesn't exist. Like that is the most illogical posture to take. It's like going before a judge. Anybody ever go before judges? You get a speeding ticket? I could stand in front of 10,000 people and not have my heart beat twice. I stand in front of a judge, I'm sweating and my voice is quivering, Right? And even in that moment, I know when someone has that level of authority over whether or not I'm going to pay a ticket, I don't dare disrespect them. And yet there is this weird notion in our minds that God is beneath us and we have the moral high ground to wag our finger at him and say, answer to me. And it's just not going to happen. He has been unmoved and unshaken by all of the fist-shaking and finger-wagging for millennia, and he has still not intervened to say, you know what, guys, I'm really concerned about my PR campaign, and like, I, just, I get what's happening, and I just need to tell you right now, like, can I, just, I just need to be heard, and I'm going to Twitter this, and then he is unfaced. He feels no need to give explanation whatsoever. And I'm just telling you, until Jesus comes back, he won't. I wouldn't be surprised if he never does. I wouldn't be surprised if we get to heaven and he just says, you're going to see my goodness laid out before you in more amazing ways than you could possibly understand. I'm never going to answer it for you. Only so that you, you just continually trust my character. The goodness of God is so prevalent and so all over. There's something, there's something here that he has just not answered for us. Well, God goes on. I think there's value in reading this because it's hilarious to me on this side of the, of the story. God continues to say to Job, have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with, uh, this is one of my favorite lines. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Go, do it, do it. Good luck. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Try it, do that. Look at everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in all the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. This, this is where I, I need you to hear me. 
I cannot think of an intelligent moment where somebody screams, yells, and accuses that the only person who can save them. Like, I imagine you're dangling, right, off of a corner of a cliff, and you got one finger, right? And the only person who can save you is so strong, and they're right there, and they're like, do you want help? And you're like, if you were good, you wouldn't have allowed this in the first place. It's like, I'm sorry. Like, what? I'm literally the only one that can make this okay right now, and you're accusing me? Do you want to live or not? And I, and I think when we frame it like this, we start to see, like, wow, like, maybe the sheer and utter arrogance of accusing God and taking the moral high ground and filling in the gap of information that we don't know the answer to with the most evil, plausible scenarios and then running away from him and then saying, I don't like you, I don't believe you exist. I gotta tell you, I just don't think a logical, sane, thinking person would take that route of action in any other area of their life. How much more should we not with the God of this universe? Job 42. Then Job answered, the Lord, and he said, like, what do you say? <laughs> it's like everything I say is going to be wrong. He's still upset. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge, you ask? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Finally, Job is where he needs to be. I was speaking about things I don't even understand. I was speaking as if I had knowledge that I actually just don't, I just don't have. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me, God. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So what? I'll give you five so what's. Number one, there is always a reason. There is always a reason, and likely he's not going to tell you. There's always a reason. There is nothing, no singular action, nothing that God would allow, ordain, or permit that is purposeless. But he's not going to tell you. Sometimes there are smaller sufferings in life where the Lord maybe years later, in retrospect, can start to bring the pieces together. But even the story you think you know about the why is maybe 1% of the whole why at best. There's always a reason. He may not tell you, but he is good. Number two, there is always a helper. Jesus leaves and says, it's better for me to go so the helper can come. This is the Holy Spirit. We are a uh, get through it and get over it kind of people. God is a let's take our time and I'll walk with you in the middle of it kind of God. We are wired to get rid of all discomfort at all costs. God is not afraid of it. He's not petrified by it. He leans into it. Because there's something, I don't know what it is. There's something he knows that I don't know. There's something. I almost feel like with my children. Um, what did my son and daughter? Um, you're being so mean. You're being so unfair. Uh, if I were you, this is what I would do. When I'm a dad, I would never do this. <laughs> so, like, think about it. They're 30-some years younger than me. They're fairly smart kids, right? They're normal kids. 
And there's a gap of knowledge and information and maturity, right? And even they, you're listening. You're like, they're wrong. You know, I'm not an abusive dad. I'm, I'm like, the discipline corresponds to the punishment and brings glory to God, I believe. So whatever, right? How much more the gap of understanding between us and God? If we can even look at a 10-year-old and say, you have no idea, who are you to challenge your dad's discipline, right? And all they see is, it doesn't feel good. If you love me, you would make my life easy, right? How much more the gap of knowledge between us and the Almighty? There is always a restraining. The assumption and the question is that God has done nothing to restrain evil. And yet, here's what we know. At every corner, God is restraining evil. The Holy Spirit, the church, the conscience that he has infused and put inside of people, nations function as restrainers. Even evil men and women function in terms of restraining global wickedness. You look at a dictator who is going to war with a neighboring country, what you may not know is that what the Lord is probably even doing is preserving individual national sovereignties so that it pushes out even longer a one-world government, right? What you even see as micro-wars are part of a longer restraining process until the whole world binds itself together. You got to understand that, that your assumption that God is doing nothing is completely baseless. In fact, here's, here's the opposite perspective. I think rather than saying, how could a good God being all-powerful not stop it? My question is, if it's this bad, how much worse would it be had God not intervened? It's a different question. But there is always a restraining, even inside of you. What dumb things would you have done if God didn't restrain you? Think about the dumb things you actually did. How dumb could you have been? You'll never know until you get to heaven. Number four, there's always a redemption. You get to the end of all of this, every ounce of sin, evil, pain, and suffering, it will make sense. He may not answer to the full extreme that you want to answer, but you're going to step back when you watch God bring all this together, and you're going to declare he is a genius. He is a master planner. Finally, number five, there's always a vindication. Every single wrong will be made right. If you're new with us to Village Church, there's, there's something that I probably have preached on 50, 60 times, and I'll just keep preaching on it. It's a phrase that has been near and dear to my heart that I've just taken in and I repeat to myself on a regular basis. If I knew what God would knew, I would do what God does every time. If I knew what God knew, I would do what God does. I would allow the things he allows. I would ordain the things he ordains. I would permit the things he permits. I would restrain the things he restrains. That there's actually no moment where God ever looks down on the happenings of human affairs and says, huh, I wish I could do that over. In fact, if I knew what God knew, I would literally do everything he does. The problem is I don't know. That's my problem. I'm really small. I'm really finite. I'm grasping at things that are way above my pay grade. I'll tell you what I do know. God is really good. God loves his people. The Lord is righteous. There is not one flaw in him. And if I can give him the benefit of the doubt through faith, one day that narrative will be vindicated. And I, I will watch all of my questions 
Some get answered, some not. But at every corner, I, w- I will look and say, wow, I would never have done that with my knowledge here. But now when I know what you know, I would have done the exact same thing. You're a genius. That's what I would do. So I want to take a moment. I want to just uh, allow even some of that to simmer and to ponder. And at the least, you know, you might say, Michael, what's the so what? The so what is trust him and humble yourself. That's the so what. Trust him. Humble yourself. Know your limits. And be really comfortable when people come to you and say, why? You don't have to have any good answer because every answer you give will likely be wrong. The answer I give is, I don't know. I know God loves you. I know that he's good. I know that one day this is going to be made right. Let's pray together. Father, as we even come to the communion table, I am, again, just reminded you are unfazed by suffering to the degree that, Father, you gave your son who experienced all the pain of humanity and suffering and loss and yet was without sin. So God, even as we come to this communion table, um, we come, some of us angry, some of us skeptical, some of us frustrated, some of us confused. And Lord, many of us believe, but there's so many questions. Would you just teach us, form us, shape us to give you the benefit of the doubt? We do not want to have that spirit of bitterness take control of us, but we confess we are so close. We are one tragedy away from going down a rabbit hole of bitterness. Would you protect us, even from ourselves? And then God, thank you that you are the great helper and you are always with your children by your spirit. You walk through pain. And Lord, on the other end, we just can't wait to see what you're going to do with all of it. It's going to be a masterpiece and you'll be be declared the genius of history. Lord, fill us with gratitude as we now reflect and remember what you've done for us through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen.